Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Symmetry Project. You can find our research activities and publications at globalsymmetryproject.com. Among the various research efforts are the podcast series. There are three of them. Today's podcast will be in the series Shaking the Global Order. But in addition, we have two other podcast series, Summit Diplomacy, particularly focused on the informals, the G20 and the G7, and the NOW series looking at uh, contemporary international events. Today's podcast uh, is in the Shaking the Global Order uh, series. It is, in fact, series two, episode 15. It's a interview with Zachary Pakin on EU foreign policy. Such a focus, uh, I believe, is uh, quite uh, timely, uh, particularly in relationship to uh, the war by Russia in the Ukraine and also rising uh, tensions uh, between the United States and China. Uh, Zach is a researcher in the EU Foreign Policy Unit at CEPS, which is the Center for European Policy Studies. He's also a non-resident research fellow with the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy in Toronto, uh, Canada, and a senior visiting fellow at the Global Policy Institute in London. Zach is also affiliated as an expert with the Minsk Dialogue Council on International Relations. He has a number of uh, recent publications, particularly with CEPs, including the EU Strategic Compass, a guide to reverse strategic shrinkage. So, let me welcome into the virtual studio Zachary Pagan to talk about EU foreign policy. The war in Ukraine seems to have had a significant impact on EU and European foreign policy making. The war seems, at least according to my colleague from uh, Carnegie Europe, Richard Youngs, to have unlocked more progress on EU foreign and security policy in a few months than was achieved in previous decades, according to him. And uh, the um, high representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security, Joseph uh, Borrell, uh, suggested that uh, uh, EU foreign policy in regards to Ukraine and Russia has, has awakened uh, a geopolitical Europe. In your view, what has, in fact, the Ukraine war done with respect to EU foreign policy making and efforts, uh, collective efforts? Well, I actually think at this point, it's it's still a bit of a mixed picture, right? We have seen some very important developments, the most important one, of course, being the granting of candidate status to Ukraine and to Moldova, which is a development that, quite frankly, would not have occurred uh, had this war not broken out. Uh, that was not really on the table before. The Eastern Partnership uh, that the European Union had been conducting was not designed explicitly uh, to lead to membership for the the uh, uh, countries that are involved in the Eastern Partnership. It was simply designed to facilitate a closer uh, economic and political relationship between the EU uh, and the six Eastern Partnership countries to you know, the varying extents that each one of those six countries wanted. 
Um, but this is obviously a very significant development now, and it comes with significant implications as well for how the governance of the European Union will have to be managed, particularly when it comes to decision making on foreign and security policy. Um, so that's that's very much significant. The other significant development, of course, has been uh, the final release of the strategic compass, which represents the first uh, joint threat assessment that the 27 member states of the European Union have ever conducted. And it also sets out a little bit more clearly uh, the ambitions for the European Union in the realm of security and defense uh, for the next five to 10 years. So it does sort of clarify and delineate uh, where those ambitions are, are going to lie. And it answers some of the questions about just how autonomous the EU conceives of itself being uh, you know, in an evolving international order. So those are significant developments. Uh, but in terms of how much EU thinking has actually fundamentally changed, I don't see a huge amount of change, right? I think that there certainly has been a clarification of the lines of, of what the EU's relationship with Russia is, right? You no longer have these fundamental divides among member states on, you know, should we try to play nice with Russia or should we, you know, be hawkish towards Russia? There's no one in Europe who's preparing to, to line up to meet Vladimir Putin, you know, in the Kremlin anymore and to listen to his so-called legitimate security concerns. That That's over and that will be over for, for quite some time. Um, there are, of course, still divisions over how long this war should go on. Uh, but my own sense is that, you know, as long as the war is being waged, uh, the EU is going to be there for Ukraine and, and France and Germany may not 100% be happy, but they will defer to the concerns of Central and Eastern European states on that. Where there okay. is not, I'll just, I'll end on this, which yeah, is where there, where, where there is not clarity, I think at this point, is how to change the thinking about what sort of organization the EU wants to be, right? So when it comes to the question of membership accession, it's still a very binary process, right? You're either in or you're out. And Emmanuel Macron has tried to get around this by proposing a European political community to provide some sort of a halfway house for countries that want to be closer to Europe, but aren't you know, prepared yet to undergo all of the reforms necessary to join. But there still is this tension between being a normative actor and being a geopolitical actor uh, and, and the old fashion of doing things, you know, sort of being a regulatory orbit rather than being a fully fledged geopolitical actor. So in that sense, you know, the, the amount of change in the form of thinking of, of EU foreign policy has remained limited. So, so this notion of you're either in or out, you're suggest, you know, really focuses on uh, you're either a full-fledged member and then you're part of the potentially EU foreign policy, or you're outside that ambit. You're not, you, you know, you can have whatever positions you want with respect to uh, foreign policy making, be it Russia or, or China or anybody else. Right, and so this, this binary process has actually led to a significant reduction in confidence in the European Union as it relates, for example, to the Western Balkans case of accession, right? You've got cases there, countries there in that region that have been waiting for a very long time um, after having been designated already as candidate countries uh, simply to open uh, the accession negotiations with the European Union mm -hmm. to say nothing of actually becoming fully fledged members, right? So if the EU is unable to decisively exercise influence in the Western Balkans, which is right on its border, it's very hard to imagine the EU being a you know significant geopolitical player at the global level. And so this is a major problem right now. Okay. And I, I take it when you're talking about the Western Balkans, you're talking about uh, Serbia, you're talking about Croatia, these countries as being in, in or out of the EU. Well, right, and Croatia has been a member state since 2013, but Serbia, uh, you know, yeah. is on the outside looking in, uh, and you're seeing right now tensions between Serbia and Kosovo that are still very much uh, present. That right. was not a resolved conflict by any stretch of the imagination. And then there's North Macedonia and Albania, 
um, you know, whose, whose two uh, bids for membership are, are interlinked. Uh, and North Macedonia has gone a, a real long way towards pursuing reforms, and they even changed the name of their country in order the to name. appease Greece uh, to get into NATO. Uh, but now there's the question of Bulgaria imposing other demands, which are actually not related traditionally to the accession process at all. Uh, right. You know, which are rather related to Bulgaria's demands concerning, you know, the understanding of its national history, et cetera. And, and this is just making the situation too complicated and, and too much for for North Macedonia to bear. So after waiting for all this time. Um, you know, th this is just really a case of the EU having promised membership and not having been able to deliver. Yeah. Okay. So, so is there then now? Are we now looking at uh, a much stronger strategic autonomy, or is uh, the concept this this notion, according to Borrell again, a capacity to act autonomously when and where necessary and with partners wherever possible? Meaning, you know, the EU then acts with presumably the United States or whomever. I mean, is is that a reality or is that more a wish, a hope and a prayer uh, by the high representative? Well, so that's one understanding of strategic autonomy, the idea that the EU needs to be able to act alone if necessary and to have the capacity to do so. But right. there are others, you know, who have obviously thought that strategic autonomy needs to mean strategic autonomy from the United States, given the unreliability of the U.S. and the possibility that Donald Trump or someone like him could return to the White House in, in 2025. So, um, you know, I, I think that strategic autonomy has gained a, a, a lease on life as an idea, not just because the French have been pushing it, but also because it is a contested concept. Uh, and contested concepts can in some cases be blank canvases. And so if anyone can paint onto it whatever they want, the concept demonstrates a degree of, of resilience. Um, but the, the fact is that, uh, you know, can we talk about strategic autonomy going forward in the realm of, um, you know, foreign policy decision-making to a certain extent, perhaps, uh, you know, in the realm of managing, uh, you know, increasingly weaponized interdependence in today's great power competition? Absolutely. We can talk about how the EU can shore up its industrial uh, base and supply chains on that front. When it comes to technology as well, there's an area for the EU to bolster its strategic autonomy. But, you know, in the realm of being a fully fledged geopolitical actor, um, you know, that's that's a, an entirely different proposition right now. And that's much more difficult, you know, especially after the war in Ukraine, which has, uh, you know, seemingly entrenched the U.S. Uh, position in, in Europe. In Europe. OK. And, and um, how, you know, what what's the balance here? I mean, we we uh, with respect to NATO, I mean, previously, of course, Macron had talked about it being brain dead. So what's, you know, kind of the balance as the Europeans see it between the EU as an actor here and NATO as an actor here. So this where, has been one of the key come come down on this. Absolutely. So this has been one of the key questions that has been litigated for a long time, and that appears to have been at least temporary temporarily clarified as a result of the war in Ukraine. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there's no doubt whatsoever um, that um, you know NATO is going to represent the bedrock of European defense right now. That that's not going to okay. change. And those people who have an aspiration for the EU to manage European security entirely on its own and to be a military actor writ large, that's not happening, right? The, the strategic right. compass of the European Union makes clear that, you know, it has significant ambitions in the realm of, of security and defense, but being a defense actor is not the same thing as being a, a military actor and geopolitical actor the way that a Westphalian state can be, all right? So those are, those are different propositions. So yeah, uh, it's good to see that a division of labor between NATO and the EU is, is sort of being worked out right now. 
Uh, it's all smiles right now after you know the NATO summit in, in Madrid and, and the, right. the release of the strategic concept there. Uh, but how long this is going to last is obviously a, a, an interesting question. And even if it does last, there are other questions that come out because that means we could be headed towards a world of block politics that is going to be increasingly rigid and and difficult to to manage. You know, and, uh, it's it's very hard to manage a pluralistic international order when you have rigid alliances that appear to be consolidating. And you have that in the case of the transatlantic alliance right now. You don't quite have that yet in the case of the Russo-Chinese partnership because China has op has opted to stay on the fence a little bit to to provide uh, you know obviously a lot of rhetorical and economic support to the Russians without providing military support. Um, but it remains to be seen, of course, you know where uh, you know what's going to happen on that front if uh, U.S.-China relations start to go down the toilet, obviously with tensions over Taiwan, and if the Ukraine war continues to be waged for for not just months but possibly years to come, years. which is entirely yeah. a possibility. Yeah. And what, what's been the impact of the applications uh, by Finland and Sweden for full membership in NATO? How has that kind of impacted or influenced uh, the European Union? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question because, you know, once Sweden and Finland become fully fledged members, that means that 23 out of 27 EU member states are going to be in NATO. And so you can ask the question two ways. You can either say, where does that leave the EU in terms of its value right. added? You know, right. is the EU little more than just an appendage of NATO? Or do you look at it the other way and say that actually, uh, of all of the NATO member states that are in Europe, 23 of them are in the EU, which actually represents a, a possibility to create a genuine European pillar of NATO, or possibly, uh, you know, as, as uh, former uh, Finnish Prime Minister Alexander Stubb likes to say, uh, you know, a fully fledged European NATO uh, altogether. Uh, and, and that's, you know, an, an interesting thought exercise, obviously. Now, where does this leave European security more broadly? Um, you know, Vladimir Putin has said that basically Sweden and Finland have always been Western-oriented countries. And so unlike the question of Ukraine's membership in NATO, uh, right. you know, this doesn't really change very much in terms of strategic calculations for Russia, unless NATO were to place, for example, something like uh, intermediate range nuclear weapons on Swedish or Finnish territory. Um, or, or, or a base, for example, something like that, a NATO base on their territory, that could change the calculations. But beyond the sort of military strategic calculations, I think that there's, there's the question of, of norms and ideas. Uh, that is to say, you know, basically with Sweden and Finland joining NATO, there are no longer really that many countries, if any at all, that embody a third way within Europe. Um, you know, there's Ireland and there's Austria, et cetera. But, you know, at the end of the day, it looks like you've got a situation where you're either a part of the West or you're Russia and there's no in-between. There's no middle ground where we can meet and, and, and find bridges and, and try to create some sort of inclusive and stable European order. So over the long term, this may make Russia's return to Europe, uh, whether that happens in, in a few years or in a few decades, much more difficult. More difficult. OK. Um, do you think, I mean, looking at it, that NATO, whether with with Finland, Sweden or not with Finland, Sweden, does it have and or the EU have a role because they seem to have played a little bit with the idea of having a role in the Indo-Pacific? I mean, is there realistically um, a role for NATO or and or the EU in, you know, this this area of uh, in the Indo-Pacific or is this just a lot of, you know, kind of hype? Well, when it comes to the European Union, the EU can't really afford to ignore the Indo-Pacific um, because okay. obviously, okay. you know, this is a region that is increasingly central to the global economy, to global geopolitics. 40% of EU trade passes through the, the so-called Indo-Pacific region. 
And the EU itself is a rules-based organization, so it depends on the survival of a rules-based international order. Uh, and this is, in the case of the Indo-Pacific, in terms of you know open shipping, et cetera, uh, you know, a very important consideration for the European Union. The only problem is, although the EU cannot afford to ignore the Indo-Pacific, the EU isn't really a fully-fledged player there either, right? Uh, there, there are a number of countries that would prefer not to have to choose between the US and China, and the EU theoretically could try to help them not have to choose and embody a third way, but that's increasingly difficult now, uh, you know, in, in a world in which US-China relations are getting worse and which, you know, basically the EU's status as a junior partner to the US has been entrenched after this war in Ukraine. So, you know, by and large, it's hard to imagine the EU playing a role on a par with the United States or China in, in this region, right? Uh, on the case of NATO, uh, you know, if you believe in freedom of navigation, if you believe in a, in a so-called rules-based international order, then the responsibility for upholding those principles should rest first and foremost with the United Nations. So that's why I found it very odd for NATO in its strategic concept that it recently released, you know, explicitly mentioned the need for NATO to play a role in enhancing right. freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, I mean, a very far-flung region. You know, NATO is about upholding stability and security in the Euro-Atlantic region, right? So is China you know, a threat somehow or a challenge somehow for NATO member states? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that NATO has a role to play in, in freedom of navigation. And so, you know, that that mention alone will only serve to worsen relations between Western countries and China and, and to make the security situation worse. Hmm. All right, let's turn a little bit uh, to, to China, because uh, there was uh, several months ago an EU-China summit. Interestingly, uh, the Chinese kind of wanted to suggest a kind of let's compartmentalize our relations right um uh for the you know set aside uh you know differences over human rights and continue to uh to collaborate um uh but uh, burrell kind of went no no we're, we're not going that we're not going in that direction uh, it, it's not feasible, right? That some of these uh, values are universal and core and very important to the EU. So, so you know, I, I say it's strange because, of course, the United States kind of suggested some of that compartmentalization when talking with China, and the Chinese said, no, we, we're not prepared to do that. Now, you know, it kind of in reverse, the Chinese suggested compartmentalization, and the European Union said, no, we're not going to do that. So, so where, where, where are, what's the state of EU-China relations at the, at this point? Well, I mean, compartmentalization, first of all, is, is, you know, not a question of principle, but rather a question of the power balance, right? So it makes perfect sense why China would not want to do that on, uh, you know, relations with the U.S., uh, you know, given that, or, you know, at least, you know, in the way that you're describing, uh, because Taiwan's an existential issue for them, it's a national issue for them, it goes beyond just a security issue, right? And so sure. it's, it's, it's more natural to want to sort of, uh, you know, see China, it's, it's not unexpected that we should see China say that, you know, the whole process of normalization of relations between the US and the PRC depends on this understanding surrounding Taiwan that's been established, one China uh, you know, 50 years ago, the one China, yeah. the one China principle or one China policy, depending on whom you ask. Uh, yeah. In the case of the EU, uh, look, I mean, promoting human rights is in the EU's DNA. There's no really getting around that. Um, at the same time, there's a school of thought that says that just give it some time, uh, you know, wait for, you know, the, the, the CCP Congress to go past, wait for, you know, Xi Jinping to be in more of a position uh, to be able to be a little bit more flexible on when it comes to certain decision making. And you'll see the comprehensive agreement on investment, uh, you know, between the EU and China be ratified eventually. It's just a matter of time. Some mutual sanctions will be lifted, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, that may or may not be the case, and I think that it depends to a certain extent uh, uh, to factors that are exogenous to EU-China relations themselves. Um, so, you know, are EU-China relations in a in a you know good place? No, they're certainly not. Uh, are they in the worst possible place they can be in? Not yet, right? Because the official EU lingo, and this has been around for you know a few years already, but it was reiterated most recently in the Strategic Compass, uh, is that China is simultaneously for the EU a cooperation partner. Uh, an economic competitor and a systemic rival, whatever that means. And, you know, different people have different understandings of what that means. Now, mm. whether it's possible to have all three of those at the same time, which would imply a compartmentalized relationship of some sort, um, remains an open question. And, and it requires the EU adopting an incredibly nuanced, uh, you know, approach towards China, which in turn requires agreement among all of the member states precisely on how to go about relations with China. And you may see that actually start to happen because the, the so-called 17 plus one format is beginning to erode. I think there's a growing realization that member states uh, need to act with, you know, as 27 Within rather than 27. in these sub, yeah, as opposed to these subgroupings if they actually don't want to be divided and if they want their clout to be maximized. So it could take some time for that actually to, to play out. And we'll see, for example, how the anti-coercion instrument that the EU is putting together plays out. Um, but you put all of that together and there's some hope that at some point, whether it's through both sides getting a little tough on each other or whether there's room for sort of agreement, uh, that, that there could be a form of EU-China relations that is distinct from the, the you know, much more rapidly descending U.S.-China relationship. Well, but let's just follow up a little bit because you've, you've mentioned a couple of things. One, uh, the 17 plus one uh, relationship, mainly East, the Eastern European countries, except it's not 17 plus one anymore because it's exactly. down to 14, uh, because Lithuania has withdrawn, Estonia has withdrawn because of, you know, conflict differences with uh, China. Of course, with Lithuania, there were sanctions imposed by China on uh, Lithuania because it uh, uh, chose to uh, allow uh, the uh, the uh, Taiwanese to use the term Taiwan uh, on their em embassy in Lithuania, and and obviously China took umbrage at that particular um, relationship. And the important, you know, and you mentioned it, the comprehensive um, agreement on investment, which you know they began that is China and the EU had begun to negotiate in 2014, finally came to fruition just at the time of Merkel's ending of her chancellorship after 16 years. But but uh, then uh, China imposed sanctions on some of the MEPs, the members of the European Parliament, and the MEP said, "Nope, we're not passing this." Um, this agreement. So, so you know, what's the state of um, China-EU relations at this point? Well, I mean, when it relates to Kai specifically, the ratification process is frozen, and and you know, the EU did impose uh, you know sanctions on certain Chinese officials in Xinjiang over their human rights abuses right. uh, against the Uyghur population there. And yes, China responded to that. Basically, China's position is. Uh, you know, this era of a uh, world order in which the West is dictating to everyone else and you guys impose sanctions on us, but we don't, you know, retaliate, that's that's over. You know, if you're going to impose sanctions on us, then we're, we're going to up the ante and we're going to impose sanctions on you. And so the lifting of those sanctions both ways is obviously going to be a precondition, uh, not the mm -hmm. only precondition, but an important precondition for the ratification of, of Kai. Uh, and uh, and we'll see where things go after that. Again, you know, it could depend on on certain exogenous factors. Um, you know, whether or not the EU and China will actually be prepared to repair the relationship. But it's true that I mean, at least in terms of goods, uh, you know, China is 
you know, and has become just recently the most important trading partner of the European Correct. Union. And, you know, yep. it's entirely possible that, that that could be halted somehow. But, you know, the, the trend does, generally speaking, tend to point in the opposite direction. What might be interesting for some people who are, you know, more expert in this topic than I to, to look at, uh, you know, would be the connection between trade flows and, and connectivity, right? So the extent to which the EU-China relationship should be viewed as synonymous with the emergence of Eurasia as sort of a central geoeconomic or geopolitical power pole uh, in place of uh, a global center of gravity that has heretofore, um, you know, been centered more on American naval power. Um, so that would be interesting to, to observe, but I'll leave that up to, you know, sort of the geopoliticians and the connectivity experts to weigh in on. So, so relations then continue to be, you know, to some degree fraught uh, between the EU and China. But I, I guess, you know, kind of as an ending piece, uh, how much do you think the, in the thinking of those concerned with EU foreign policy, um, the experience of a much more uh, uh, nationalist um, administration, that is the Trump administration, uh, um, back uh, 2000, uh, in, in 2016 to 2020, and, and the possibility of its return. How much do you think that weighs on uh, EU thinking uh, currently around um, around uh, the relationship between the EU and Russia and the EU and China and so forth, and obviously the United States? Well, well, it weighs a great deal in the sense that everyone's talking about it. I mean, at every conference you go to, people are very keenly aware that, you know, if a few thousand votes in Pennsylvania go one way or another, there very much could be a U.S. president that could fundamentally upend, uh, you know, the, the, the transatlantic alliance. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, is the EU actually planning strategically for that eventuality? I mean, I, I don't really think so, because... Look, even the ambition of, of the strategic compass that the EU just um, passed and just recently adopted uh, back in March, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, a five to 10 year horizon here for, uh, you know, defense, uh, you know, pooling of resources and integration and, and ambition and the like. And Trump could be president again much sooner than that, or someone like Trump could be president much sooner than that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, Europe's dependence on, on America is very clear right now. If you look at the amount of military assistance, that the United States has provided to Ukraine throughout this war compared to right. the amount that European countries have provided. There's no comparison. I mean, the U.S. is, is ahead and it's just night and day uh, by a country mile. And so, you know, if Europe were really left to maintain uh, or rather to manage its own security in this crisis, you know, the Russians would be in Kiev by now. Uh, so, uh, you know, going, going forward, you know, we can talk about, you know, the Europeans spending more on defense. That's fine. Um, you know, but that's not quite the same thing as, as a united European Union emerging as a cohesive single actor and pole in the military and geopolitical sense. Um, and that's what's going to be necessary for a fundamental change of, of thinking within Europe. You know, even though there's some important changes on the margins, even though there's important dimensions of actorness in the softer realms to enhance European sovereignty, those are all important. I'm not going to deny the importance of those. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, the, the future of the transatlantic relationship, I think that, you know, the certain trends that we're going to see over the next few years are already locked in. Okay. Well, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I take it conceiving of the relationship broadly, I mean, particularly as you point out, the growing uh, interdependence between China and the EU uh, on trade and investment and so forth, uh, that... Um, it, it's not it's not as if we conceive of this relationship in kind of three pillars, like there's the EU and there's, 
you know, China and there's the United States, three major geopolitical actors. I take it it's much more uh, complex, complex than that. Yeah, so the EU could be part of a big three when it comes to, for example, trade, uh, you know, yeah. and geoeconomics, when it comes to, for example, climate change as well. I mean, the EU absolutely could be one of the big three uh, actors in, in climate negotiations and in making a difference in, in, the, in the green revolution. Um, okay. But, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, the high geopolitics of, of you know, the emerging great power contest, uh, you know, the, the EU is, is not in the big three and Russia may not even be in the big three either. Um, you know, to a certain extent, it is due to its geographic size, due to its nuclear weapons arsenal, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, it, it looks like the United States is basically in a league of its own. It's followed by China, which is in a, in a secondary league of its own. And then after that, you've got other actors, um, which right. may or may not be considered middle powers. I mean, there's a case you could theoretically make that that Russia, you know, is somewhere between great power and middle power, especially after the war in Ukraine. And we'll see the extent to which it's capable of actually restoring uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's foundations of national power the same way that it did, for example, after the devastation of uh, the Russian Civil War or after the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, we'll see if something like that happens over the decades ahead. But at least for the foreseeable future, you've got um, what you might call a, a multipolar order or rather simply a, something that is not quite unipolar, uh, but not fully multipolar either. Well, Zach, I really appreciate your thoughts on this and your perspective coming uh, from Europe and uh, about uh, the European Union and its relationship with Russia, relationship with China and its relationship with the United States. A real pleasure to talk to you about these issues today. Thanks very much, Alan.